All right, guys, look, we know what this is. It's my pre-show pitch to try to convert more free first-hour listeners to full two-hour plus show subscribers. And this is a format I've been using for 10 years now, so I realize that most people who see the value have already pulled the trigger on it, but now I'm trying to get deep down into those hard-to-reach places, and I guess that's you. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said? There's only a few ways a podcast works. The big one is ads. They suck. They ruin the flow of the show. And in a lot of cases, they erode the trust and respect I have for hosts that go this route. They shouldn't be promoting boner pills and hair pills or encouraging a fast track through the therapy pipeline just because they're getting paid. I've seen nutritionalists break down some of these ingredients in the athletic health powders and drinks and surprise, they're not as good as they claim to be. I bought a razor my favorite podcaster said would be Nick Proof, nicked myself the first day. I got sucked into a foam mattress from a guy who said he's never slept better and I haven't slept good since. And that Irish titles thing everyone was selling turned out to be a complete scam too. But enough about how my colleagues' mouths are for sale to whoever asks, I'm here to put you in this Plus membership today. Five shows a month for eight bucks with a decade-long archive. And yes, the first hour is important. It's there to present our guests to the wide counterculture, open-minded audience we've cultivated, and it gives people a feel for if they like what THC is, as well as being the proof of concept that I can do a lot more with the added time. The second hour is so I can make a living, and it's also an opportunity to get into the stuff your standard one-hour shows can't. Asking guests about that obscure, provocative quote from their book that I actually read, talking about previous work they might have done, getting their thoughts on some odd subject outside of their latest material, or maybe even talking about something too spicy to be out there in the open. And that should appeal to anyone who enjoys the first hour. And when you become a Plus member, these full episodes are all there in a single two-hour file, no switching back and forth or downloading two separate halves of the same interview. It's very nice to have it that way going forward. And if you want to go back, unlike most podcast archives that are just a big chronological list, the HiresideChats.com has categories and scrolling displays much like the big streaming services. And it's all optimized for mobile, and you can even download the files for offline listening. Find some old ones you liked and refresh your memory by starting at the beginning or jump in about 50 minutes to hear everything that would be new to you. I'm even going to be pulling one free plus show a month out of the archive and into the free feed to give you an even better sense of what you miss. The on-site comment section is pretty lively and the rating system is there to let me know the shows plus people like best. You also get lifetime access to the forum and access to a bonus page of exclusive interviews I've done here and there, bonus content from other shows that I was on videos from the few live podcasts I've done, and the MP3s of all the THC closing cover songs I've had made. But that's not all, folks. Plus members also get a discount code for THC merch. A lot of great artwork of aliens, summoning rituals, hollow earth maps, and a wide range of wild stuff put on shirts, coffee mugs, pillows, yada yada yada. But it's the ongoing full interviews people want, and it's convenience that they need. Well, I know 90% of listeners are in a podcasting app right now. So at the top of the show notes, there are the sign-up links. The form is quick and easy, and THC Plus has an RSS feed like any other show, and it can be used with all the big podcasting apps too. I've got support documents and real non-bot people to help you if you need it. But it's been made as easy as it can be, and you get a seven-day free trial to make sure I'm right. At least meet me there. I also have a Patreon link at the top of the show notes, which I don't love. I'd rather not have a middleman between us when we could be dancing cheek to cheek, but they are a Spotify partner, and a lot of people choose Spotify to listen to THC. So I wanted to make sure they could use it for Plus also, while they let us. 
The show notes also give you my P.O. box for cash, checks, or business-to-business bartering, as well as all the crypto addresses, because anything is better than nothing. And I want the Plus shows to be heard any way they can be. Just offer me some kind of exchange, you know? This is the job I work at. And I use this example a lot, but a waiter gets an $8 tip for walking the most forgettable meal of your life from the kitchen to the table, and you don't get anything extra for your $8 either. If what I do here isn't at least worth that, is it even worth your time? Hey, I don't like doing this part of the job, but I owe it to my family now to suck it up and make my case while I can, because who knows how long this can last. I'm not some Hollywood millionaire trying to appear genuine through a focus grouped podcasting venture cycling through all the other celebrities in the agency. I'm just a regular guy who had to make myself valuable when the working world didn't think I had anything to offer. And I hope the first free hour proves that the full experience is worth the price. If we don't like the ad revenue-based world we're living in, then we have to support people who dare to do it a different way, who provide us something interesting, entertaining, and hopefully useful. Outside of that, I just ask that you support the guests who resonate with you, or at least let them know you appreciated what you heard. And that's it. We can get on with the show. And we'll let the rest of the podcasting world pretend there's no better way to do it than disingenuously hyping up any product that cuts them a check while we do our own thing. Meet me on the plus side. The water's fine and enjoy. Side chatters from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's no secret that the parasitic puppet masters of the power pyramid cannot just be content to enjoy their privileged positions and the freedom that comes with their extreme wealth. They have to control our lives too. And they are throwing their weight around in pretty much every way they can energy policy, medicine, patented lab made food, the obsessive control of online information. Smart thermostat throttling, electric car kill switches, ESG investing, stakeholder capitalism, trying to establish central bank digital currencies, and nonstop chatter about the need for digital IDs and tighter travel surveillance. We know the entire COVID response was based in control rather than compassion. So what does that mean when someone like today's guest, Seamus Bruner, concludes that the COVID protocols were just a template for the dream future they're working to manifest? Well, Seamus makes his case that this is the case in his new well-titled and well-researched book, Controligarchs, exposing the billionaire class, their secret deals, and the globalist plot to dominate your life, which is currently ranked number one in Amazon's globalization category. He is also the director of research at the Government Accountability Institute and has been providing research and support for numerous New York Times bestsellers with them since 2013. His previous titles include Compromised, How Money and Politics Drive FBI Corruption, 
and fallout, nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that enriched the Clinton and Biden dynasties. Seems like as good a fit as any for what we do around here. The controlagarch, accountability advocate, billionaire, elite, alarm sounder, and globalist plot resistor. He will not be eating the bugs. Fellow Florida man, Seamus, welcome to the higher side. Oh man, Greg, that might have been the best intro I've ever gotten. Thank you. The alliteration is on point. And yeah, that was great. <laughs> scary times. Yes, it is. And so, uh, you know, I try to make it a little less scary with the alliteration. And of course, you have the best title ever, Controlagarchs, as everyone says. I'm jealous I didn't think of that myself. But the intro of your book says, what is a controlagarch? Well, an oligarchy is a system run by the ultra-wealthy few. It is an inherently anti-democratic system, but ours is not just a textbook oligarchy like, say, the Russian government. Unlike the Kremlin-friendly industrialists looking to preserve an old oppressive regime, the American oligarchs are a new breed of philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and tech titans seeking to impose an unprecedented system of control not only in the U.S., but around the world. While they would like us to believe they are innovating for the better, people such as Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk are creating technology and making investments that will micromanage every aspect of your life. The truth is they hoard unimaginable riches at our expense. Well, that says it all right there, but talk to us a bit more about these unimaginable riches compared to the rest of us and just how profitable COVID was for them. Because while we were locked down and small businesses were pretty much not allowed to operate, they were doing pretty well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when people hear the word oligarch, it conjures up images of, you know, maybe some Russian industrialist, you know, a guy who owns a coal operation or an aluminum operation, and he's on his yacht and he's eating caviar surrounded by Russian babes or something. The thing about those oligarchs is they're not trying to control every aspect of their citizens' lives. They're just rich guys. So, you know, oligarch has always been sort of just this term for a rich person. But slowly, we've heard oligarch applied to, let's say, the Silicon Valley guys, the big tech oligarchs. And so before I had the title, I, you know, I just thought, yeah, these guys are all super wealthy. Now, being wealthy isn't inherently a bad thing. And there are plenty of good billionaires, but this book isn't about them. And so the word control just kept coming up. And you see it more and more. I mean, whatever show you're watching or whatever interview you're watching and people are talking about things like digital ID or central bank digital currencies, you just will start hearing the word control. It's about control. And so one day I was just sitting there and thought, you know, these are the oligarchs that want to control you. They're controlligarchs. And the term stuck. Not everybody was in favor of it, but they've all come around. It's hard to find on Amazon or on other book retailers. You type it in and Amazon, Jeff Bezos will suggest for you controlling arches whatever those are. So <laughs> if you're searching for it, just keep scrolling past the controlling arches and you'll find control garks somewhere. But regarding their unimaginable riches, I mean, people can't really fathom the characters in this book, their net worth, their personal net worth, the money at their disposal tops $1 trillion. And it's growing every day, especially thanks to the pandemic. The pandemic was very good to these guys. Now that may not surprise the savvy listeners of your show because you know most people know that when we were locked down, everybody got on Facebook and they were scrolling for the latest Fauci guidance and Amazon was super convenient bringing things to your house so you didn't have to leave. 
And so, yeah, those guys, they doubled up in some cases. Mark Zuckerberg, he was worth $60 billion before the pandemic. Now you look at him now, he's close to 120 just a couple years later. That's a ton of money to make in just two or three years. Same with Jeff Bezos. I put Elon Musk in the book just because as the world's richest man, he's got to play some part in the coming control oligarchy. Now, I do give him credit for some of the things he's done. He's done some really great things. And I give credit to all these guys because they've all done some great things. I mean, as I'm typing the book up on Microsoft Word, Bill Gates has a great company he built. I'm a Mac guy personally, but Microsoft Word is a great word processor. So anyhow, I, I don't caricature them at all. But they did get really, really rich through the pandemic. The worst part, what really kind of blew me away is what they're using these riches for. And what they're using it for is to take control over every key industry, whether it's food, whether it's health, financial control through the CBDC push, which is, according to the World Economic Forum and NGOs like the Atlantic Council, very powerful groups, has strong momentum heading into this year, 2024. CBDCs is something that's basically game over, in my view, once they get that implemented. BlackRock is pushing it very hard. And so that's the financial control. I mean, you've got energy control. That's basically controlling everything. If they can control your energy uses through things like carbon allowances and carbon taxes, I mean, Joe Biden and his Inflation Reduction Act put in a per mile gas tax, or they're working on the per mile gas tax to really regulate how much you can drive. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says, the more pain you experience at the pump, the more benefit for electric cars and electric car usage. So, I mean, they said it out loud, they're profiting from the pain, the more pain, the more benefit. And that's on the energy side of things. They don't want you to be able to fly. They'll exempt themselves and their private jet travel, but really they don't want people to be able to travel. And they say it quite openly at places like Davos. I mean, the 2024 Davos World Economic Forum meeting is just around the corner. You're going to hear a lot of things like that. And yeah, on and on and on. The deeper I dug, the more sinister it became. Every aspect of your life is subject to their control. Yes, it is. And that's a great summary. Your book gives a ton of details about the money, but the gist of it is that the 10 wealthiest men on the planet Gates, Bezos, Zuckerberg, and Musk among them doubled their personal net worth over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. And you also say the top 25 largest World Economic Forum members have a combined post-COVID value of nearly 10 trillion, which is up from 8 trillion. It is crazy because COVID is still being used as an excuse as to why things aren't better now and why so many people are experiencing financial hardship. So it's just like a complete 180. And I might have a little more respect for Elon Musk than I do Bill Gates, but not a whole lot. I mean, I see Musk as kind of like the government welfare queen when it comes to pretty much every project he has from Starlink to Tesla to Neuralink. I mean, it's all government money. Like he definitely has been privileged in that regard. And when it comes to Gates, I mean, I got a lot of things about Gates to ask you about because his fingers are in every pie <laughs> when it comes to the big control pie. He's getting a piece of every slice. But my understanding of his wealth creation was 
in the early internet days, a lot of these guys were kind of uh, sharing their tech and they kind of had this open source philosophy until he came in and kind of patented every little thing, was very cutthroat in his monopoly generation. And you can say the same for Zuckerberg too, that the whole story is that he kind of stole Facebook and the idea for it. So a lot of these guys, they're not the geniuses they're presented to us as. They have huge government favors. They're in a private club of huge angel investors and money just flowing their way. We don't have that opportunity. And so I don't know. Sometimes I think they get mythologized and glorified. Of course, a term like control oligarchs doesn't necessarily glorify them, but it's a big club and we aren't in it, as Carlin would say. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, regarding the World Economic Forum in the top 25 members, now there are thousands of World Economic Forum members, but our job at the Government Accountability Institute is to follow the money. And so for the first time ever, I crunched all of their market caps and found just the top 25. That would be companies like Apple, Meta, Amazon, et cetera. They're obviously deeply involved in the World Economic Forum, some of the biggest funders of the World Economic Forum. They're worth $10 trillion. Now, if you add BlackRock, which is not in the top 25 by market cap, but it does have over $10 trillion in assets under management, that brings it up to $20 trillion. You add in State Street and Vanguard, and you're up near $25, $27 trillion. That is more money than the GDP of the United States, the world's leading economy. It's more than the GDP, obviously, of China and every other country. So in a way, these guys at the World Economic Forum, they've got more economic power at their disposal than the richest countries in the world. And they're, in a lot of ways, more powerful than countries. I mean, Zuckerberg's got 3 billion people looking at his app every single day. And that is an unprecedented level of power and information control. And so yeah, the World Economic Forum, their power and their members, it's really, Klaus Schwab is just sort of a front man and the World Economic Forum is sort of a catch-all for the people with the globalist mindset. And the key thing to remember about the control oligarchs, and I lay it out in the book, is that their number one goal is to transfer power and control away from individuals, away from individual countries, people like you and me, countries like the United States, and to transfer the power and control to international institutions, things like the United Nations, things like the World Bank or the World Health Organization, institutions that they control. Bill Gates is the largest individual funder of the World Health Organization. And so when they put in place these pandemic treaties or the Paris Climate Accords or any of these global consensus things that none of us voted for, by the way, obviously, we don't get to vote on any of this stuff. That's why a control oligarchy is inherently undemocratic. You don't get a say in any of this. These are unelected billionaires, unelected bureaucrats. And because they're unelected, they're unaccountable. Now, you could say our politicians are also totally unaccountable, and that's true to a degree. But we can throw the bums out when enough people get together and decide that they need to be thrown out. That's not so with the World Economic Forum. That's not so with the UN or really any of these other international, supranational organizations like the World Health Organization. I mean, Tedros at, at the World Health Organization, I mean, his popularity among citizens is probably, you know, in single digits, or it should be. But nonetheless, he gets to keep his job, even though he screwed up all of the pandemic guidance. Fauci got to keep his job for much longer than he should have. 
And so it's a big problem here. And then getting to what you were saying about the origin stories of these guys. Yeah, I noticed it was mighty convenient. They all seem to have like the same origin story here where, uh, you know, just a brilliant whiz kid, computer genius, math nerd, tinkering in his garage and, you know, with no real help from anybody, just pulled himself up by his bootstraps and built a trillion dollar company out of nothing. That's not the, <laughs> that's an origin fantasy. That's not the truth with these guys. I mean, they are brilliant. I'm not going to take that away from them, a lot of them. But at the same time, they were chosen. They were selected. They got the venture capital money. In some cases, let's see, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, they both went to Harvard. They had the same computer science professor. They're sort of these young global leader type organizations that they get plugged in with very early on in life. Mark Zuckerberg was like a bright leader for tomorrow at Johns Hopkins, along with Sergey Brin actually Lady Gaga of all people, people who long before they're famous, they get into these little clubs, clubs that you and I would never get sponsored for, never get into. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, they're running trillion dollar companies. And the Young Global Leaders, that's Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum group. He's minted plenty of these billionaires before they were billionaires. So a lot of people say, oh, it sounds like conspiracy theory that rich people are getting together in rooms, smoke-filled rooms, and deciding the future of the planet. I think you're insane if you think that's not happening. Honestly, <laughs> of course it's happening. Of course they get together. I opened the book with this meeting of the good club, and we could probably just, you know, we've got some time here. We could probably start at the beginning there if you'd like. Sure, let's do it. Tell us about the good club. I always love branding in general, your book, the name of the show, but also like the branding of these little organizations and Many cabals, they're all interlocked. Tell us about The Good Club. Yeah, The Good Club is, I mean, that's a real name. I didn't make it up. It's a hilarious name because it's like, you know, a bunch of evil billionaires getting together. What do we call ourselves? Okay, let's call ourselves The Good Club. You'd think maybe they could afford a little more creativity here. But it's George Soros, Bill Gates, and David Rockefeller. They're the three primary founding members of this Good Club. They get together, and Bill Gates is really the ringleader, but David Rockefeller, and I lay this all out in chapter one, the Rockefeller family is really the prototype for the control oligarchs. I mean, people think of the Rockefellers, and they sort of lump them together with the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and all these industrialists of the past. I mean, yeah, they were robber barons, but they weren't trying to control every aspect of our life like the big tech guys are today, right? No, wrong. The Rockefellers were and are very powerful family. I'll bring this through to the good club. John D. Sr., he's the guy who set up Standard Oil. He was the oil man, manically focused on delivering the best petroleum products to consumers. I mean, it had to be the cheapest. It had to be the best. And so in a way, he was probably you know, one of the greatest capitalists that ever lived. And he was not into all of this philanthropy that the Rockefeller Foundation does today, quote unquote philanthropy. But we get into how that's really sort of a PR stunt in a mechanism for control and a really good business model. But his son, John D. Jr., I mean, had enormous shoes to fill. He was never going to be the oil man that his father was. He knew that. It's, you know, a lot of people who grow up in these dynastic families struggle with this, where it's like, how do I live up to dad's expectations? And so what John D. Jr. did is he decided to, I mean, his father sets up the Rockefeller Foundation right when the Justice Department is bearing down on Standard Oil. And you see this, Bill Gates basically took this page out of the Rockefeller playbook, is right when the Justice Department is starting to 
close the noose around the capitalist enterprise and say, listen, this is anti-competitive. You're using illegal tactics to stifle competition here. And so we're going to break up Standard Oil. That's what happened in uh, the early 1900s. It was right around the time the Justice Department is preparing to do that, that they set up the Rockefeller Foundation. And the Rockefeller Foundation, I mean, John D. Sr. starts giving out nickels and dimes to people on the streets, became very famous for just you know, walking by someone and giving out a nickel. It was all a PR move because he had become a very hated person. This is exactly what Bill Gates has done today. And so we can, we can talk more about the Rockefellers, but that's sort of ancient history. Bringing it up through the Good Club, the Rockefeller University is where they actually set up in 1904, the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. And they've been researching viruses and pandemics. And I mean, before the Spanish flu, over 100 years, and they found that you know medicine and pandemic planning and preparedness is actually a good business model. And so people have heard that Bill Gates predicted the pandemic and he was saying, we're going to have another pandemic and there's the next pandemic coming. And what does he know about pandemics? He actually learned a lot of this from the Rockefellers. They've been doing it for over a century. And the key here is, is they don't actually cure many diseases at all, but they get a ton of taxpayer money to study them. And they get to dump a bunch of their profits into a tax-exempt organization where they will go and develop pharmaceutical products that then they will profit from later. So tax-exempt resources, you know, the taxpayer subsidizes any of the research and any of the losses, and then all of the profits are privatized. That is something the Rockefellers developed and Bill Gates is sort of perfected now today. Now, getting back to the good club. So it's David Rockefeller, Bill Gates, George Soros. And they actually bring about a half a dozen or a dozen of their closest billionaire buddies. Oprah Winfrey is there. Ted Turner is there. It's in New York. It's May 2009. And so the context for this meeting is Barack Obama has just been elected. Basically, all of the members of the Good Club spent an enormous amount of money and influence to get him there. And so they want to be able to use this Obama opportunity to their advantage. Also at that time, is it's sort of on the tail end of the global financial crisis. There's a lot of populist anger bubbling up. I mean, this is just before Occupy Wall Street. It's just before the Tea Party movement. And so these billionaire guys know that the public is starting to get mad. And so kind of out of this meeting grows the giving pledge, which is where they promise to give away half their wealth before they die. You know, that's sort of a scam as I lay out in the book where it's like, I mean, they'll never be held accountable if they don't give away half of their wealth. And they end up giving it to their own foundations anyway, which really just increases their private profits anyhow. So is it really charity if every dollar you give away, you get $2 back? Or is it just a business model? But I digress. So the good club, so they're all huddled up in this very posh president's house at Rockefeller University. And they're going around the table and talking about, well, what do we want to pool our resources? What should we like fund as an umbrella cause? What do we all care about? And, you know, maybe Ted Turner or someone will say, oh, like climate change, this is actually sort of before climate change became the huge priority it is. And I show that actually climate change is really a front for what they decide at this meeting is the number one priority for the billionaire class. And that is overpopulation. At the Good Club meeting in May 2009, they all agree that overpopulation is the number one crisis facing humanity. There's just too many peasants out there, and we've got to do something about it. Now, if you look at the birth rate and the birth rate decline for the past 60 years, you would think that they should be taking a victory lap. People like the Rockefellers, 
They have been funding things like Planned Parenthood and every form of contraception you can imagine. They've been funding huge propaganda campaigns to convince people not to have children for 60 plus years. Today, it's at the lowest level it's ever been. But in 2009, it was just above the lowest level it's ever been. So the fact that they want to continue lowering the birth rate is pretty diabolical. I mean, we're at actually a crisis level. And this is one of the things I applaud Elon Musk for is he's one of the very few billionaires out there talking about how we're actually in a birth dearth and it's a big problem and that we need to be having more babies, not less. And countries all around the world are experiencing this, Japan, Europe, et cetera. We know that we're not going to get any of our social security money that we're paying into this supposed senior safety net back because there's not going to be anybody to pay into it when we're old. So Anyhow, the good club meeting, they come up with overpopulation as the number one concern. It's kind of bizarre. But then you look at what they start funding immediately afterwards, and it's both pandemic-related research, and it's also a bunch of climate change propaganda. And that's kind of where they're at today. But then for the 10 years following the good club meeting, they try really hard on climate change. Barack Obama makes it a huge priority, hyping it up and making people feel really scared. And Greta Thunbergs are popping out of the woodwork and saying that, you know, we're all going to die in 10 years if we don't give all of our control and money to the control oligarchs. But you get to 2019, and it actually hasn't taken hold. I mean, people have collectively shrugged at it. Nobody wants to give up their car. Nobody wants to walk everywhere and drive a bike. Nobody wants to skip flying and, I guess, take a train across the country that would take five days. So, you know, it's been a collective shrug. And they actually talk about this at the World Economic Forum. The pandemic was extremely useful. It was a great opportunity because people weren't taking climate change seriously, but they took a virus seriously. And I don't allege, I don't, you know, make the case whether the pandemic was a virus intentionally released or an accidental leak. Or, I mean, I do think the uh, natural origin is sort of ludicrous. And that's being proven every day if it hasn't already been fully proven. But it doesn't really matter whether the virus was intentionally leaked or accidentally leaked. What matters is that they were planning for a pandemic and they were well positioned to profit from one. And that really starts around the time of the Good Club. I mean, the Rockefeller Foundation releases its Operation Lockstep memo in 2010. And from every year after that, Bill Gates is giving TED Talks about pandemics and being prepared for them. And so that really brings us sort of to the Great Reset and what Klaus Schwab says is coming next. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I definitely appreciate that breakdown of the Good Club. It's uh, one of the meetings I haven't really heard a lot about before your book. Sounds like a mini Bilderberg meeting where they just didn't invite uh, the lower rungs, I suppose. But let me ask you a little bit about that collective shoulder shrug, because that is a thing like the elite can have their plans. And that's what we spend a lot of time talking about is their plans. But I don't know if they'll achieve everything. And it's great to see a little pushback. I think one example would be the ESG scores. You have a section titled Creeping Social Credit Scores, the Woke Investing ESG Scheme. And it's not hard to see how this template is applied to corporations first, and then it could trickle down to the individual level. But this part of the plan is already sort of failing, right? I mean, Disney, Bud Light, Target, we keep seeing these counter reactions. And you write that now more than half the states are taking steps to stop the ESG system. Talk to us about what they're doing to affect that and the general state of that system and, and some of the losses that are coming from trying to implement these plans. 
We've seen it for 60 years, at least. I mean, every time the public gets wise to one of the control oligarch schemes, uh, they have to rebrand. And that's why I've got a lot of hope for the future, by the way, is because people are waking up and, you know, you get to the end of this book and you're pretty melancholy. It's heavy stuff. But I do have a lot of hope for the future. And that's because every time we wake up and we get wise to their plans. And so, I mean, just going back to the Rockefellers in, you know, 1920s, I mean, they were working on eugenics birth control and population control. I mean, you go, I've read through all of their annual reports and they talk very openly, very proudly about eugenics and population control. And then it kind of trickles out and people realize like what they're up to and then they have to rebrand. And so they sort of rebranded population control as maternal health or family planning. And they come up with all these really nice euphemisms. And so ESG is just sort of like a nice euphemism for, I mean, what is environmental, social and governance? You know, what does that mean? What it really means is they want a seat on every single company's board. And if you're not complying with the control oligarch agenda, then you get demerits. You get downranked. It's a corporate social credit score. And so ESG has actually almost become a toxic term. It isn't quite there yet, but BlackRock, and it's because most people don't know. I mean, if you've got retirement savings, if you've got a 401k or you know IRAs that you're putting money into and you don't know what it's being invested in, Go check it out. I mean, you might see that BlackRock is investing your retirement money in ESG scheme. You may not even know that your retirement fund is being handled by BlackRock, but it probably is. I mean, there's a good chance if it's through your employer, it probably is. And so what's happening is BlackRock is taking your money, a lot of people's money, trillions of dollars under management, and investing it into companies with high ESG scores. Now, a high ESG score just means that they've got like some woke diversity coordinator at the company who is probably going to end up running the company into the ground, which is like you said, with Bud Light and Target, where they think that the people who drink Bud Light want a Dylan Mulvaney type as their spokesperson. Obviously, they're clueless. And so back to the hope I have is like when people realize what's going on here, they all of a sudden boycott and we've got a lot of power. We outnumber the control guards like a million to one. And so if we really band together and do things like the Target and Bud Light boycotts, you can actually have a great effect. And so the ESG and the diversity chief gets canned. I mean, it looks like Bud Light will probably recover and Anheuser-Busch will probably recover from that. But it just shows the power that people have if they decide to vote with their dollars and refuse to fund their own demise. I mean, that's in the solutions in the end of the book. I mean, one of the things that you must be doing is knowing where every dollar you spend is going. Don't be funding the people who are trying to destroy you. It seems like a simple thing. I know it's a lot harder, easier said than done. It's very hard to cancel these control oligarch type services. They're very convenient. Amazon is super convenient in getting things in two days is convenient and Procter and Gamble products uh, work, I, you know, and so it's tough, but you really do need to be trying to spend as much of your money in your local community, not in these globalist organizations. It's the same thing with the food. Bill Gates wants to take over the food supply. You need to be supporting your local farmers, if not trying to provide as much food as you can for yourself. Yes, well said. I absolutely agree. It is hard to actually keep our money local, but it is the only practical thing I can think of because I'm kind of sick, even though this is my job, I'm sick of the education phase. You know, a lot of times we're just talking to each other. We're talking to people who already know, reinforcing what's already believed. We're siloed. We're not reaching new people often. And 
It's frustrating to me, but if you aren't super vigilant, you will find that your money is accidentally going to these places. Like you said, where is your 401k? Who is investing that? And it is all structured that way to siphon the money up. So you have to be really careful and absolutely focused on local first. And that includes ranchers. I mean, how many ranchers are within a hundred mile radius of you that have good grass fed cattle? Probably five. Five is pretty close to zero. So if you're not careful, you won't have any options. So utilize them now. And it is the food stuff that worries me the most. We do hear about Bill Gates buying up American farmland, and you write about a big purchase in North Dakota, but this part hits pretty close to home. In 2012, Gates also began buying up pristine farmland atop Florida's legendary aquifer. By 2014, Gates had spent nearly $30 million buying up almost 5,000 acres. A subsidiary of Gates' Cascade Investment Vehicle called Lakeland Sands pumps 20 million gallons of groundwater out of Florida's aquifer every single day and is, in the words of a Florida Springs councilman, compromising the health and welfare of North Florida. Gates, or his investment group, choose folksy and benign-sounding names for his agriculture landholding companies such as Oak River, Midwest, Swanee, Generation Farms, Red River Trust, and Cottonwood Ag Management but his intentions appear anything but benign. Well, 2014 was quite a few years back. Is there anything more to say about what he's doing that's affecting the Florida aquifer and just his moves in the land space and food space overall? I know you also cite that one of the biggest insect protein companies came online with huge investments from him and Mark Zuckerberg. Talk to us about the food aspect of this big controlled pie because it, it's getting kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that concerned me. It's right down the road from my house. I use I-10 all the time going between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. And you drive past Lake City and you see, first of all, all of these major solar farms popping up. I haven't yet been able to link those to Bill Gates, but I know that there's a connection, at least to some of the control oligarchs with, I mean, they're just clearing out. And it's the craziest thing because you see like a cattle farm and all of the green space around it has just been totally wiped out and turned into this dystopian looking, as far as the eye can see, mishmash of glass and metal. It's hideous. But anyway, I'll, I'll get to the North Florida and the Gates farm purchases. So Bill Gates in the 90s, Microsoft got into trouble. Some people may remember there was this big antitrust suit against Microsoft and it was because its tactics were deemed illegal by the Justice Department. And so throughout that investigation, it resolved in 2001. Bill Gates hired some high-powered lawyers and basically just lied or said he didn't know to a lot of questions and more or less got away with it. But it was an instructive trial. And we learned about this strategy that Microsoft had. It was called Embrace, Extend, Extinguish. And so I, you know, I show in the book that Bill Gates is using the same strategy today. It was specifically used by Microsoft to, quote, cut off the air supply, end quote, to its competitor in the internet browser market, Netscape. And how it worked was like this. Microsoft would embrace the standards of a given industry and kind of enter into that space, the internet browser space. They created an internet explorer, and then they would expand, extend their reach throughout that industry. That would be by 
installing their software on every single PC, whether you wanted it there or not. And eventually, the extinguish phase came by, quote, cut off the air supply to the competitors. And they can do that in a number of ways. And so I show in the farming sector, this is how Bill Gates did it. He kind of starts, I mean, I see evidence that he began his food takeover long-term strategy around 2008 when he buys a big chunk of a company called Ecolab, which is a big water treatment and sanitation company. It's a huge company if you haven't heard of Ecolab, and they do a lot of stuff in agriculture. But after that, he starts buying up farmland. And this is around 2011, 2012. And he buys chunks in Georgia. He buys chunks in North Dakota. He's got a potato farm in Washington that you can see from outer space. It's pulling like 14,000 tons of potatoes out of the ground every day. It's a big supplier for McDonald's French fries. And he's got things in Nebraska, Louisiana, all across the country. He's up to close to 300,000 acres. That makes him the largest private individual farmland owner in the country. I mean, a lot of people ask, like, what does a software guy like Bill Gates know about farming? Like, is he a farmer? It's like, no, he is using Microsoft big tech strategies and intellectual property. He's really good at cornering an intellectual property space. And so that's where the fake meat and the insect-based proteins come in. Things like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meats. Bill Gates, he starts buying the farmland, and that's sort of the extend phase of the Embrace, Extend, Extinguish. He buys more and more of it. Then he starts investing in these alternative protein companies like Beyond Meats, Impossible Foods. He extends his reach in that sector. And you can tell what game is going on because he only does it after those companies have received patents on their protein chains. It's crazy. I mean, most people don't think that you can patent meats. They already did it with seeds. Companies like Monsanto, which Bill Gates at one point invested $23 million in Monsanto, they patented the seeds and now they're patenting the meats. And so then what comes next is the extinguish phase. And so we're in that extinguish phase right now where Bill Gates is trying to put all of his competitors out of business. And that would be like your local ranchers and your local farmers. And just ask any farmer that you may know, go find one, ask them if their business is getting more or less profitable. I mean, the chances are that they may be going out of business soon. It's dire straits for the farmers. And that's because in the extinguish phase, Bill Gates pushes for regulation changes that put his competitors out of business. And that would be things like emission standards. Now, they'll never say, we're going to ban cows. They're going to say, we're going to tax you per head of cattle based on their methane outputs. And so when Congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez get out there and start harping about cow flatulence, like she didn't think of that herself. That comes from a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation white paper type thing or a World Economic Forum white paper where they say that methane is just this massive carbon, you know, it's a terrible greenhouse gas. We're all going to die because of the cows. That's BS, no pun intended. It's not a big problem. It's actually one of the most effective ways to deliver protein to people. And it's one of the most cost-effective ways. It's very cheap to get a lot of protein to a lot of people via cows. What's not cheap and what is actually very carbon intensive, which is how you know that they're kind of hypocrites on this whole thing, is the lab-grown meats and the fake meats. They use way more carbon, aka greenhouse gases, to produce a fake meat hamburger than it does from a regular old cow. And so here's why Bill Gates doesn't like cows, is because you can't patent a cow, but you can patent a lab-grown fake meat patty. And a patent is essentially a 20-year monopoly. So this is what the guy has been up to from the beginning. 
is Monopoly. I mean, yeah, I read all the family memoirs. His favorite game as a kid was Monopoly, go figure. And he wants that 20-year monopoly on meats. And so that's why he's invested in the fake meat companies. Now, here's the thing that gives me hope. Nobody likes fake meats. I mean, like, nice try, <laughs> but even if you make it bleed like a real hamburger or something, people still aren't going to like the taste. And Bill Gates talks about it. He's like, oh, the taste is getting better. Eventually, you'll like it. You probably won't. But where it gets really sinister is the fact that if you don't like it, you may not have a choice because they're eventually... He, Bill Gates calls it the green premium. It's a nice little nifty term, kind of like ESG or, you know, family planning where, you know, it sounds pretty benign. What is a green premium? A green premium is where they jack up the price of the non-green item through regulations and taxes and making it more expensive so that they can subsidize the price of the so-called green product. So your hamburger, your ribeye, you're going to go to the grocery store and then, you know, already over 20 bucks, maybe over 30 bucks. Next, imagine it being 40 bucks. It's going to turn into a luxury good. Maybe you'll have steaks on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty intense. And the mass slaughter of cattle is just a really insane and important part of all this. I've talked to ranchers who have said that it takes many generations to select for the right genetics and temperaments so that you can build a successful business from that stuff. And I've heard you say in previous interviews, they're considering slaughtering 40 to 200,000 cattle in Ireland alone. And there was this big thing in the Netherlands. Is this still on the table? What happened in the Ireland situation? Has that been resolved? And where else are we seeing mass slaughtering of cattle being proposed, if not already enacted? Yeah, so I first saw the headline in the summer. I mean, I'd already written of last of 2023. I had already written the food chapter and I see this headline. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. 200,000 cattle or they're preparing to slaughter in Ireland. There was some outrage, obviously. First of all, this is going to be a lot. It costs a lot of money. And what's going to happen to the meat? I mean, 200,000 cows or what are you immediately going to freeze all the beef? Or I mean, it's a big logistical question. But they lowered that down to 40,000. And now it's kind of quietly, we're not sure. But we do know that the farmers in Ireland are up in arms. In France, just a couple of weeks ago, they were flinging cow manure on the government in the parliament buildings. You know, they were just dumping it on their government buildings. We saw that happen with the Dutch farmers. In Germany, actually, they just had a, this was like two or three weeks ago as well, a big trucker convoy, tractor convoy of all the German farmers. So Europe is a bit further ahead than we are. I'm not sure if the cows have been slaughtered yet. I sure hope not. But I do know the farmers are really ticked. And what's happening is it's kind of like this slow boiling of the frog where the control oligarchs take a few steps forward and people get up in arms and they back off a little bit. And then they say, okay, well, instead of 200,000 cows, we'll just slaughter 40,000 cows. And what it really is, is an intimidation tactic to the farmers where it's like, well, if the government's coming for your cows, you better get rid of them. And maybe next year, you just won't have as many. And eventually, it's like, well, you know, all of the input costs have gone up due to a number of factors. I mean, inflation is a big thing, too. And that's all by design. I mean, I get into that in the financial control chapter, chapter seven, follow the money, all about the central banks. I mean, this inflation isn't an accident. Like, it doesn't just happen by, oh, whoops, we like totally devalued everybody's currency. No, they dumped it into their own pockets. So you're kind of double screwed, both from the inflation where your dollar buys a nickel's worth, and also from the taxes. You got to pay off all these debts. You got to pay more taxes. So like, on top of that, just as a digression here, 
the worst part about all of it is not just that they're taking your money. I mean, you know, if you're paying a 25% tax rate, you're essentially working three months out of the year to give your money over to Joe Biden or whoever your supreme leader is. And then like, what are they doing with that? They're shipping it off to Ukraine. They're shipping it off to the endless war machine, resettling migrants in your hometown, migrants who will get, you know, education and healthcare and everything that you're not getting for free. And so you're worried, like, think about that. I mean, you're working three months out of the year. You know, this might be one of those months where you're just working to pay for all of these things. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part is the opportunity cost. I mean, we could actually be a great country. We could be building great things and great cities and great parks and social services. I mean, you could fund potentially something like a Medicare for all or whatever. If you're a left winger, I wrote this book. I mean, it transcends political lines because it's not a left or a right thing or a Democrat or Republican thing. These are existential issues. And so the opportunity cost of all of that money that they're taking from you is enormous and it's depressing in a lot of ways. But getting back to the food thing, we're heading into a year of potential global food crises. And these guys are just playing with fire. And the thing is, with the crises comes opportunity for them, not for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are a lot of aspects to the food thing. We've been kind of sounding that alarm for at least a year now. And some of the feedback I get is like, well, is this all doom and gloom? Is this chicken little stuff? Because I don't see a problem. And it's like, well, I mean, we're trying to get ahead of a problem. We're trying to tell you about plans that take a while to implement. Agenda 2030 is several years away. So if that's kind of like a marker for a lot of this, then yeah, it's going to take a little bit of time. But you also have a whole chapter called the dystopian present. That's probably another one of the most concerning big tech working with intelligence agencies, the information industrial complex, the attack on alternative information. I've heard you make a good point in previous interviews that they can't force feed us the bug milkshakes, but they can control the information that reaches us and they can control the perception and information around those bug milkshakes to the mainstream. And a lot of people will willingly do it. So talk to us a little bit about the important points in the dystopian present chapter and where tech comes into a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So as I was working on it, and it was sort of like tech addiction, and we, you know, everybody knows about tech addiction. I mean, 40 plus states across the country are suing Meta right now because it's got an intentionally addictive business model. And it's not just that you're wasting time scrolling away on Facebook or Instagram. It's that kids are becoming depressed and suicidal. And a lot of people have heard about that. And it's a serious problem. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And then you move into like Web3 and Metaverse type stuff and the Apple Vision Pros are coming. And, you know, the Oculus hasn't really taken off with people. But just a couple of weeks, a month ago, Facebook signs a big deal with Tencent in China to mass produce these headsets, make them cheaper, make them more lightweight and more accessible to people. And it's probably going to end up and an Apple Vision Pro will be like the really cool one. I mean, I, you know, I, I may get one just because I like Apple products, but no, I would not recommend getting stuck into the metaverse because it is going to be very addictive. And you may find that, you know, I think Ready Player One, if you've seen that movie, is probably the situation they're working towards, which is like life is just so depressing and economics are just so terrible that putting on the headset is a nice escape to get out of it. And you may live in a hovel and a dump and you don't have much going for you, but at least you've got the headset. And here's how we get there. I mean, we are full speed ahead. This isn't conspiracy theory. 
it's through AI, this AI revolution that's happening. And it looks cool. A lot of things look cool. I, you know, I get it. You see some of the things that are coming out with AI. It's like, wow, this is making my job easier. And a lot of people are starting to use AI in their job. Just know you're training your replacement and you, you know, maybe you'll become a master of it and you'll be like the checkout clerk who, you know, survives when 29 other clerks get fired and you're the one clerk overseeing the 30 self-checkout machines, maybe. But we know that AI is going to lead to massive job losses. Just ask Sam Altman, who is the head of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. And so Sam Altman probably knows as much about AI as anybody. Bill Gates is right up there too. Microsoft is a major backer of ChatGPT and OpenAI. I mean, it just happened out of nowhere, right? Where you kind of thought, that's why I titled the chapter The Dystopian Present is you always thought about like AI and cyborgs and terminators. That's like something far off in the future, right? We'll know when we get to this dystopian reality where like the cyborgs are running our lives. No, no, we're there and it's happening every single day all around you. I mean, I just saw a Microsoft article the other day about how radiologists are now obsolete. I mean, the AI, the GPT type things can now scan and analyze x-rays a lot better than a human. And it makes sense, right? And so there was a thought a while back that the automation revolution, the AI revolution would take out blue collar jobs first. It's actually the inverse. It's going to take out the professional jobs first. And people who work with their hands will be safer for longer than the professional classes. Lawyers, more or less obsolete. Doctors are going to, I mean, they'll last maybe longer because people will want a human touch, but they'll last only as long as it takes for the AI to, in the, uh, you know, doctor bots to make less mistakes than doctors. And with medical malpractice and deaths resulting from botched things like surgeries and stuff, it won't take long for the doctors to be replaced. And driving, I mean, driving is the largest employer in the country. It's 6 million plus jobs in the country are basically just driving things from A to B. And auto deaths, accidents are among the highest accidental deaths in the country. So it will only take as long as it takes for self-driving cars to get in less car accidents than humans before you'll hear Congress saying that nobody should be driving and it should all be automated driving. There's, you know, six to 10 million jobs there. And so you can see very quickly out of nowhere, there's going to be massive job losses. Now, what will that lead to? That will lead to, and you hear it already, demands for a universal basic income, UBI. You hear people talking about it all the time. Andrew Yang would have been the top political leader who was calling for that. And you can see the appeal, right? I mean, a lot of people, you know, there's Reddit slash r slash anti-work type people who think like, oh, this will just be great. Like, I'll be able to take up cooking classes or finally learn the guitar or, you know, learn how to do watercolors and painting. And I'll just really get to explore my creativity. And it'll just be so wonderful when I don't have to work. That's not the case. That's not what's going to happen. It's not a coincidence that ChatGPT and OpenAI are backing the largest study into UBI ever conducted. And so Sam Altman has actually put out sort of this manifesto talking about how much UBI you will be entitled to because his company, which is now worth approximately $90 billion, it started as a nonprofit, which I mean, I kind of get into like the whole scam of the philanthropy and nonprofit. OpenAI started as a nonprofit getting tax-exempt resources. That's where we subsidize the research, we subsidize the losses, and then all of a sudden they sort of like reverse merge it into a for-profit entity. It's like one of the shadiest companies and governance structures ever. 
But OpenAI, you know, privatizes all the profits. And Sam Altman says, you'll be able to get a check, a UBI check. In fact, every working man and woman in America will be able to get a UBI check based on how much profits AI is going to create for the controller guards. What will that check look like? between ten dollars and $15,000. And so you may think, well, hey, you know, that's not bad. I could live on $10,000 a month. No, 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 that's per year. And so we're talking about numbers like 30,000. We're talking about welfare-like numbers. So like when you hear UBI, just think poverty. I'll be in poverty. They're never gonna give you like, uh, what do you think? You're gonna get a million dollars a year to sit around and like play video games? Not a chance. They're not gonna pay you to do that. In fact, Yuval Noah Harari, I'm sure some of the listeners here have heard of him. He basically says, you'll be useless, you know, and this is not some faraway thing. This is a couple years away. You can see the videos popping up left and right of people, you know, mostly like sitting in their cars, kind of crying about not being able to afford insurance. Not afford, it's, and they're tragic videos. They tug at your heartstrings and you're just going to see more and more and more of that until people demand UBI. And in order to get your UBI, this is how they'll put in things like a digital identity. You need your digital ID, a biometric, new social security number for everybody on the planet. Sam Altman has actually already created this kind of like on the blockchain digital ID. They're all working on various forms of it. They're all working together on various forms of digital ID. And then that will be linked to your central bank digital currency. I mean, if you think it's conspiracy theory, just go look at how much money they're pouring into it. I mean, it's a lot of money. Billions and billions of dollars are being poured into these systems that not for nothing. Right. I mean, clearly you've done this before. That is a, a really great summary of all kinds of stuff. And I actually think the AI tools, the ones I've used are pretty dumb, but they will get better. And when you couple that with the cheap labor coming over the border that they're flooding America with, I mean, those are the people who are going to get the jobs that a computer can't do. The service industry jobs, working in the kitchens, doing the lawn services. We're really going to get squeezed at both ends, the regular people. And, you know, you mentioned metaverse. That's another one of those things where, I mean, some people think, why should I get in shape? I can just be an obese slob. I can have a in-shape avatar. But that's another one of those things where it seems like it's kind of a dud. It's not really landing as they wanted it to. The excitement is not there. But we also know about Elon Musk and Neuralink. And this is a paragraph from your book. It's long, but I thought it was good. You say, Elon Musk has said that virtual worlds like the metaverse should be accessed directly without the need for devices or peripherals such as VR or mixed reality headsets. Musk's company Neuralink has been testing brand new microchips that inject digital data straight into the human brain without the need for a cumbersome headset. On November 30th, 2022, Musk announced that a lab monkey with a Neuralink brain chip could telepathically type on a computer, and he had already played a telepathic video game with another lab monkey in 2021. Musk pointed to the fact that the primate at the computer was not restrained as evidence that it enjoyed the brain chip. They get a banana smoothie, he said, before laughing off concerns about animal welfare. But there were reasons to be concerned about the welfare of Musk's test subjects, given that Neuralink-enabled lab monkeys were allegedly subjected to extreme suffering. There was evidence that after having their skulls drilled into and the Neuralink electrodes implanted, some hapless monkeys experienced so much pain that at least one began gasping and vomiting relentlessly until it collapsed from exhaustion and had to be euthanized. Another monkey was apparently found with some missing fingers and toes 
possibly because it chewed them off after painful suffering or experiencing trauma. This animal was also euthanized. Neuralink has killed about 1,500 animals, including more than 280 sheep, pigs, and monkeys following experiments since 2018, according to a Reuters investigation. Despite these obvious red flags, Musk had imminent plans to begin Neuralink human trials after Biden's FDA gave his company the green light in May of 2023. We are excited to share that we have received the FDA's approval to launch our first inhuman clinical study, Neuralink tweeted. Musk celebrated the news and continues to emphasize the purported treatment applications for neurological conditions and injuries such as paralysis. Would Musk's human test subjects also be treated with banana smoothies? <laughs> wow, I mean, that's a lot of detail I didn't know. Scary stuff. And now I hear this porn star Kayla Caden was announced as the first human to receive the Neuralink implant to go with her other implants and cosmetic surgeries, I guess. And there's a Sun article that says, Kayla compared the Neuralink chip to getting Botox for the brain and has offered herself up for the human trial. The model from Las Vegas hopes to see the implant improve her brain power. Quote, people use Botox for their face. This would be the same, but for the brain. I won't have to worry about the effects of aging on my brain. As a hybrid human, the possibilities are endless. I mean, <laughs> poor girl. Uh, <laughs> I have not seen any dates included as to when this is supposed to happen. Have you talked to us a little bit about your Neuralink concerns? I mean, that is a hell of a paragraph. Let's get PETA involved. I'm not, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I guess, in the case of PETA. But talk to us about Neuralink and where this actually is in the process of human hybridization. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you can tell I had some fun with that paragraph. I mean, it's dark, serious stuff. But about the banana smoothies, I mean, Elon, and this is one of the things. I mean, so I give Elon a lot of credit. I know he's like this white knight on the right right now, and everybody's applauding his free speech absolutism, but I'm very wary of that. I mean, you know, freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach is a very Orwellian way to look at free speech. It's like if you're put on a desert island and you're allowed to speak and nobody can hear you, do you really make any sounds? Probably not. So this is where on Elon that I don't trust the guy. And that's with Neuralink. I mean, with the monkeys and the psychic text messaging, and you can see, and I, I sort of mentioned it in passing, but it's key here because the New York Times just did a piece on Neuralink type brain computer interfaces. And the thin edge of this wedge is going to be like paralysis. I mean, it's hilarious that they're using a model and influencer as the first person to get Neuralink. They probably should have used like a Stephen Hawking or a, you know, Christopher Reeves type. That would have been much more sympathetic than <laughs> all due respect to her, maybe a bimbo type. But in any case, they're pitching it right now as we're going to cure paralysis and people who've gotten into like terrible car accidents and maybe like CTE for the football players. And who could be against that, right? Who could be against trying to help a paraplegic person walk again? I mean, that's an ambitious goal. And if they succeed and it stops there, I applaud them. But that's not where it's going to stop. It's more like for this model to have increased brain function, brain capacity here. And ultimately, the end goal, I mean, I'll just, you know, spoiler alert, is they want to live forever. The one thing that maybe unites everybody is that we're all going to die. And a lot of people are afraid of that. You know, if you don't have a belief system that helps you through that, then if you think you're just going to become worm food, as a lot of these godless technocrats in Silicon Valley think, 
then yeah, you're pretty afraid of death. So they want to live forever. Elon Musk talks about uploading his brain to the cloud and you know using a Neuralink type situation to maybe download it into an avatar. Again, this sounds like sci-fi, but the FDA just cleared it for human trials. You've got people signing up and they're not just like walking into, you know, Aldous Huxley talked about the painless concentration camp in Brave New World where it's like where everybody's sort of just placated with drugs and you don't know that you're in a concentration camp because it's painless, but you're sort of just there and you're numb. That's what people are running into. They're running into the painless concentration camp. And with Neuralink, I mean, you may think, easy, I just won't get one. And this is happening in our lifetime, as you just mentioned. There's like someone about to have it. And you know, maybe she'll end up chewing off her fingers and toes and have to be euthanized. I don't know. I hope not. But yeah, the monkeys, I mean, they don't seem to be responding well to the Neuralink, which is like what makes the FDA approval for human trials so baffling is like, uh, did you not read about how all of these animals are getting euthanized because they're in excruciating pain and vomiting relentlessly after getting electrodes implanted in their brain? But anyway, full speed ahead. And an analogy I use is like, imagine you're playing trivia, you're at the bar, you're playing trivia, and your team is given the ability to use your cell phones to answer the trivia questions. Think about what an advantage you would have. Everybody else has to use their brains, but your team gets to use your cell phones to answer. You'd answer every question perfectly. You'd win every time. And so that's what life will be like if these Neuralink trials are successful, if you are able to do, as Elon Musk says, tap into the cloud psychically because you've got you know, the Neuralink and you're able to just answer any question on the spot because you got Wikipedia pumped into your head your advantage will be massive. And so like, I mean, if you don't have a Neuralink, I mean, you'll eventually get to the spot where everybody's got the upgrade and you're holding out, but you're not gonna be employable. You'll be useless because you'll need the chip. So this sounds sort of crazy. Hopefully that's not what happens, but that's what they're working towards. And so whether or not that's the reality, I mean, that's what these guys are working towards and you can see people are rushing into it. And so it's a big problem. There's over 10,000 people. I mean, BlackRock, Neurotech, no no relation to BlackRock, the financial institution that I was able to find, but a different company, BlackRock Neurotech, claims they've already implanted over 10,000 people with microchips in their brains. And so, you know, it may start out as just sort of like a Fitbit. You know, you're not going to be able to like recall everything, the entirety of human history and like quote <laughs> Wikipedia, but it may just be like clocking your brain activity and you can go check it on your app. You know, I had a lot of brain productivity today. My neurons were firing on all cylinders today. And eventually, you know, you'll, you'll be able to get more and more data. And all of this is being sent, obviously, to the data harvesters. And Yuval Noah Harari, he says that those who control the data control the future. And so this can't be going anywhere good. I mean, that's the thing is we've sort of peaked, in my opinion, as a civilization, when you can order a pizza and have it at your door in you know, a matter of minutes, or you can have any product that you could possibly want in two days or less without having to get up. Like, why do we need to go even further and merge man with machine? I think it's playing with fire. It's trying to play God. These guys have God complexes on steroids and it's still full speed ahead. So that's kind of like what this book is about is we're not necessarily there yet, but it's a lot closer than you may think it is. And unless we wake up, it's going to be not really optional. Like same thing with the headsets. It's like, yeah, you don't want to use a headset. Guess what? I didn't want to download Zoom on my computer. I didn't want to have to telecommute. And then all of a sudden I had to. And now like people say, oh, only Zoom. You know, like, oh, we're having a work meeting today. If you want your job, you may have to use Zoom. And so like 
resisting putting on the headset. And that's why I think Vision Pro, Apple Vision Pro is going to be, and it's really these augmented reality headsets. I mean, the full-blown virtual reality headsets are a fail because you can't see what's going on around you. So that's kind of like disorienting and it's not going to work. But if you're just wearing a pair of glasses and it's kind of merging your reality and augmenting your reality, and it's not a full-blown virtual reality, that will be sort of the gateway drug to the full-blown Soma, like Brave New World and the Painless Concentration Camp. Right. You can see it playing out. It also pairs really nicely with the smart city plan. And you're going to be competing with people who did do this. It's a lot like the jab, really. It's like your boss is going to say, hey, for the company's sake and for our liability and everything, you're going to have to do this for our productivity. It's going to go from liability to productivity. And it's going to be about monitoring your brain waves and your levels of concentration. Well, I see here on the report, Jim, that you are only concentrating on your tasks 18% of the day today. And it seems like you had a distraction quotient of 13. Meanwhile, your colleagues down the hall, you know, they have much better reports, Jim. And that is kind of what is going to happen. It is insane. But before I cut you loose, I wanted to at least fit in a little bit about your previous work. Fallout, you mentioned, we know a little bit about the Uranium One story, but compromised seems like it's really intriguing to me how money and politics drive FBI corruption. What would people find out about in that book, Compromised? Yeah, it's still timely. It came out in 2018. This was back, I mean, during the Spygate, Russiagate, whatever gate saga with Donald Trump being a Russian asset or whatever. The thing about that was, I mean, it's a fascinating story. So I work with a guy, Peter Schweitzer. He's a legend. He's my mentor. He's an American hero. Schweitzer did this book, Clinton Cash. And that was probably my third book with Peter Schweitzer. And I'm sort of the nerd that Peter Schweitzer will throw a thousand pages of Clinton Foundation 990 IRS filings. And if you've never looked at an IRS 990 report from a charitable, quote unquote, charitable foundation, it's the most boring document you could possibly look at. It's like 10 point font, a ton of numbers. None of them make any sense. You just kind of look at the bottom line numbers and you're like, wow, that's a lot of money. But these things are like 150 pages for the Clintons. And to their credit, I have to say, the Clintons actually did disclose who their donors were. And so what I did is I went line by line and I put all of those donors into a spreadsheet. And then I did the same thing for Bill Clinton's speaking engagements. And I mean, it was hard work, but we did it. We crunched the numbers. Our motto is follow the money. And I put it all into a spreadsheet. I started sorting and filtering by country. And what do you know? Bill Clinton gives a speech for $500,000 in Moscow paid for by a Kremlin-backed bank that had ties to this company, Uranium One. And so we started to kind of put a thesis together, like, what's Hillary Clinton doing in June of 2010 when Bill Clinton gives the speech? She's meeting with the Russian delegation to talk about things like a New START treaty and various policies. And there's this Russian illegals program. And eventually we get to, there wasn't a lot of reporting. It was like, I think like one Bloomberg story and like a PRS Newswire like press release that announced that the Russian nuclear agency, Rosatom, had purchased a company called Uranium One. And Uranium One had mines or uranium assets across the Midwest and across the, you know, out in Utah and various Rocky Mountain areas where there's a lot of uranium and in Texas even. And so this company, Uranium One, it was actually a Canadian company that had 
somehow acquired all these uranium mines in the United States. That required State Department approval to sell off to the Russians. I mean, you hear them getting all like hot and bothered about the Russians. I mean, it's like Donald Trump and then now like more recently with the Russia conflict with Ukraine. But back then, they didn't seem to have any problem. Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Timothy Geithner was the Treasury Secretary. They all, more or less, Joe Biden signed off on the Russian takeover of American uranium assets. And that's a largely misunderstood story. But nonetheless, that happened. I mean, there was this illegals spy program where Joe Biden as vice president said, let's sweep this under the rug. We don't want to create like a flap was his boomer word for, uh, we don't want to create an issue with the Russians. So why don't we just give them all their spies back? That was in 2010. And so having done all of that research for the Clinton cash book, I had already like accumulated a ton of knowledge on John Podesta and Tony Podesta had all these relationships with Russians. There's a ton of Democrat connections lobbying for Russia. And there always has been. I mean, go back to McCarthy. It was like there was the Democrats who were being infiltrated by the Soviets in moving forward. And so like the Democrats have always had this kind of cozy relationship with the Soviets and now the Russians. And so we put out Clinton cash. That was in May of 2015. I mean, Hillary Clinton had not even yet announced. We started the research in 2014. So we weren't even doing it because she was going to be a candidate for president. We were kind of just looking into it and she was thought to be maybe a candidate. But in any case, then all of a sudden Donald Trump comes onto the scene and they start talking about Russia. And so we were kind of like, I mean, before anybody really noticing that like, this is weird. You guys are the ones who are in bed with Russians, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump, you know, he tried to have a Moscow deal in the 90s or something, you know, like there's very limited connections to Donald Trump. And guess what? He was never in politics. So whatever business dealings he may or may not have had with Russians sort of has nothing to do with like the Secretary of State signing off on a massive uranium transfer to Russia. And so that was like the beginning of the compromise book, because then it started to come out piece by piece that like the FBI was working hand in glove with the Clinton campaign. I mean, the number of unprecedented scandals that have happened in the last five to 10 years is staggering, and you can't really even keep up with all of it. But this is so huge. And it is so corrupt that our FBI is working with a political campaign to take out the opponent of the regime or really of the control oligarchs. And so I followed the money to James Comey and Robert Mueller and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and found sort of this business model that they have, the revolving door business model, where they'll work a few years. In James Comey's case, he worked in the Justice Department in the early 2000s. And then he goes through the revolving door in 2006 and gets a job with Lockheed Martin, the largest defense contractor. And a lot of people think like Lockheed makes planes and bombs and stuff like that. And that's true. But Lockheed Martin actually has a massive IT division that is like uh, information in signals intelligence and mass collecting of data and things like FISA. They deal a lot with that. And so James Comey, he was kind of like a small player in the government, all of a sudden gets made general counsel of the largest defense contractor like in the world. He gets a $6 million signing bonus. He gets all these stock options, ultimately worth between 10 and $20 million for this sort of mid-level bureaucrat. It was really bizarre. And what I noticed and what I found and reported in Compromise is that Robert Mueller, he and James Comey are good buddies. They've worked together since the 90s. Robert Mueller is FBI director while James Comey is general counsel of Lockheed. And under Robert Mueller, the FBI signs a billion-dollar contract for the Echelon. It's a domestic spying and big program where the FBI runs the FBI's IT division. And so 
that's just sort of corrupt where, you know, passing a big billion dollar contract to your buddies, you know, it makes sense why Lockheed Martin paid James Comey so much money. Then he passes back through the revolving door, comes back, tags in sort of as a tag team operation for Robert Mueller. What does Robert Mueller do? He goes and sets up Robert Mueller Associates and starts advising corporations like Booz Allen Hamilton. That's where Edward Snowden works. So one of the biggest spy contractors in the country. And he actually advised Facebook, Robert Mueller did, and gets paid a ton of money in the revolving door there. Christopher Ray, same deal. He's close with these guys. He goes in and out of the revolving door, works at a big law firm representing big corporate clients, helping them get off. And so if you wonder why the big fish never seem to fry, it's because they pay off the people who end up becoming the FBI director. And whether they hire them before they become FBI director or after, it's kind of this, I call it the retainer model. It's You can never prove the quid pro quo because a lot of the savvy members of our political class are on retainer rather than just getting directly bribed. And so if you have stock options, you're going to do things that favor those stock options. And control guards, I talk about Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, she was holding stock options in Proterra, this electric bus company, as the energy department is working to promote this company. It's so corrupt. And yeah, it really goes back to the Justice Department. That was the point of compromise is the Justice Department, the FBI, this is why they always get away with it, is because the people running our Justice Department are corrupt or at least compromised. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just so impressive how you keep all this stuff straight. You're a national treasure, man. And your book is so, so full of stuff. I mean, I got six pages of notes here. We barely even scratched the surface. And it's just a really great book. I said this before we started, but I was reading the ebook version and I was getting what I thought was pretty deep into it. And it says I'm only 40% through. And then I finished the book and I'm like, oh man, that extra 60% is all the footnotes and endnotes and sources. And that itself is really, really impressive. And I just enjoyed this a lot. I mean, we fit probably four hours of information into a two hour conversation because you are just so good at what you do. Your book is also a number one bestseller in the political freedom category on top of globalization. And I wish you the, the best. I mean, I hope this book has continued success, an amazing name. Before I really let you go, Give the people any other info you'd like about your links, websites, and the Government Accountability Institute and really what they're up to there. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. It's great to be able to do a long-form interview and get as much information. I know we just scratched the surface, but it's a lot better than some of the five-minute, 10-minute interviews I've done. So I appreciate the time you've given me. You can follow me on all platforms at Seamus Bruner. It's S-E-A-M-U-S-B-R-U-N-E-R. You can go to controlagarchsbook.com. And if you want to avoid Amazon, I think if you go to the book tab, it's got information. You know, you can find a bunch of information there. You can find interviews. I'll, I'll post the link whenever you, this one goes live. You know, I've got other interviews there, the Epstein articles I've done. I've done a lot of articles that contain information that's in the book and updated with like real-time goings on. And I'll probably do a new Epstein piece once these records come out. Remember about Epstein, just whenever you hear the word Epstein, think JP Morgan. And when you want a client list, JP Morgan has it. And I think if we focus all of our attention on JP Morgan, we can get the client's names. A lot of people are a little defeatist about this because we've been snowed so many times on it with the flight logs and everything else. And it's like, we're never going to get the names. It's like the names are out there. And JP Morgan has admitted to it, a billion dollars, human trafficking, 
that billion dollars, whoever sent that money is involved in human trafficking, that equals guilty. So we just need to stay focused on that. And GAI, I mean, we've got a website, thedrilldown.com. Peter Schweitzer does a podcast every week. And you'll want to listen to that. It's a lot of the goings on with cronyism and corruption, both domestically and in the foreign policy space. So, uh, you know, Schweitzer is the real national treasure. And I'd encourage you to listen to his podcast. And besides that, thank you so much. I appreciate the time here. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for spending the time with me. The show can only be as good as its guests. And we put out a great one today. Very impressive book. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. All right. Thanks, Greg. And boom goes the dynamite. Seamus Bruner, everybody, coming in hot with a lot of info and the best titled book I've seen in a long time. You know me, I like creative wordplay and good branding, and I of course reached out when I learned about this book. I do sort of have a personal quandary with interviews based around these themes, though, if I'm being honest. It's part of the THC DNA and always has been, so it must be done. But we have reached a place in the conspiracy culture where the plans and goals of the globalist puppet masters and the World Economic Forum and the UN are pretty much talked to death. There's not the diversity of ideas that there was in a pre-COVID world, and we know what they want to do. We know they regularly get a little further downfield with implementation, but it is a slow process, right? I bring you five shows a month, and I want to make sure we're keeping things fresh and interesting. And even though this is some of the most important material we can cover in terms of consequences for our lives, I don't want THC episodes to start sounding like broken records. The latest Davos meeting happened between recording this and releasing it, by the way. Maybe I could have planned that better. And I have seen some decent coverage of it, but again... It's nothing they haven't been saying since 2020. We have to eliminate disinformation. We have to stop climate change. We have to eat less red meat. We need digital currencies, etc., etc. And it is a beautiful thing that their progress isn't more rapid. But in terms of podcast content, what more do we need to know? I had actually pulled out a lot of small, specific facts and things from Seamus' book, but I didn't get to fit too many of them into the interview. But just to mention a couple, I thought this was interesting. Here's a quote. Consider the case of Gates's Seattle-area nuclear energy startup TerraPower, which endeavors to put small nuclear reactors in towns and homes across America. On top of the benefits provided by Gates' investment and the grants from his tax-exempt foundation, TerraPower also benefits from direct taxpayer cash infusions in the form of Department of Energy grants. In 2018, TerraPower and its partners won a combined $4.8 million from the Department of Nuclear Projects in North Carolina and New York. In 2020, the Department of Energy again awarded TerraPower taxpayer money this time a staggering $80 million in initial funding to build a nuclear reactor. Five months prior to TerraPower's announcement, Warren Buffett funneled over $3.2 billion to the Gates Foundation, where he has served as trustee for 15 years. Buffett also once pledged more than $30 billion to the Gates Foundation, which was the largest charitable pledge in history. Buffett's whopping multi-billion dollar donation to the Gates Foundation was announced as he resigned as trustee. 
In 2022, Terra Power landed another taxpayer-funded grant. This one was for $8.5 million and was the largest in a package of 11 grants announced by Biden's Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm. So I think this whole thing is interesting. In other contexts, we would probably celebrate the idea of a energy generator powering a small town, but when Gates is in charge of it, you got to be skeptical. But it illustrates the point that I said early on, which is like, they're not really all that successful when you take the thumb off the scale, when you remove the advantages they have, what could they really do? The point of reading that was that they get a lot of government money, which is our money. And when you add it all up, including the Buffett money, it's probably $4 billion or something, you know, just for that project. And then you have that whole $30 billion for the Gates Foundation overall. You have Elon Musk and every one of his companies being government funded. And then you have Bezos with a huge investment made by the CIA and Google and all these companies. Like how successful would they be on their own like we all are? And how successful could our projects be if we had the same advantages? Do you think you and I could be just as successful with $4 billion thrown in our laps? Probably. What makes them special is their advantage, not necessarily their expertise, their insight, or their ingenuity. I also was going to mention this, but in 2017, according to Seamus's book, Gates dropped $80 million on nearly 25,000 acres of land outside of Phoenix, which was going to be the site of a planned top-down smart city utopia called Belmont. And for something that started in 2017, you'd think I'd heard more about this. Maybe it failed. Maybe it's just taken its time. But I don't hear a lot of people talking about this Belmont project. And I wanted to at least mention that for people who would want to dig deeper into it. And I think most of the other stuff in my notes was at least touched on. I think he was great on Elon and probably pretty spot on with the Epstein thing. I think that was in the Plus show. But we talked about how everyone was getting excited about this document release, but it's a big red herring because it's just documents from a specific trial. And Seamus said we should really be looking at JP Morgan, who processed, I think, close to a billion dollars in child trafficking related payments. And there's two sides to every transaction. So there's got to be a client list somewhere in there. But Seamus said that this reveal of the documents would not tell us much we didn't already know. And I had the same suspicions, but I will give him that. I think he was absolutely right now that a week or two has passed and we saw what that stuff was. And all in all, I think Seamus does a great job spreading the word on Controligarchs and the information in it. He does a lot of mainstream shows too, which is why I think he speaks so fast. He's used to trying to jam in as much as he can in a 10-minute TV spot. And in fact, seeing the clips for this episode are kind of funny because he's in a suit behind a professional background, and I'm just me in my semi-cluttered office in another black hat and black t-shirt. But I say this all the time. We want these 
elite projects to fail and we're not going to get anywhere if we don't reach new people and spread this information outside of just our counterculture communities. So my two criticisms of Seamus's approach might actually be strategic choices in trying to bring this to more people in a way that they can hear it, right? That's important. In a way that doesn't trigger them into shutting down because it's conspiracy theory stuff. Tone and approach matter a lot. I think being aware of that has helped my success, and I'm sure it's helping his as well. But a lot of his really good points started with compliments of these guys. They're geniuses. They're very successful, motivated, etc. I pushed back on it the first time just to say, hey, you don't need to do that for us. But after that, I just let it go. But you could see how that would help with a certain crowd. So maybe it is a good thing overall. But secondly, Seamus often says these oligarchs are different. They want to control your lives compared to the elite class of the past. And it's true that new technologies have enabled the ability to surveil and control on an individual basis like never before. But that doesn't mean they didn't always want to do this. And the Rockefellers absolutely monopolized medicine, co-opted the education of medicine suppressed the alternatives, and has done a huge amount of damage just within that one sector of health. Not to mention killing off fuel alternatives like alcohol and maybe even water, if you ask Stanley Meyer. Hemp fuel, of course, was a thing. They destroyed and dismantled the public travel alternatives that were already there. They funded the highway system like it was some altruistic thing, but what it did was make sure that these advancements consumed as much oil as possible. Instead of trains from city to city, now it's every individual person on the highway guzzling that sweet, sweet gas. It wasn't charity. It was an investment in infrastructure that would cement them at the top of the oil pyramid forever. Which, of course, was a big theme here. Foundation suggests some kind of charity when really these are all schemes. But it didn't just start yesterday. They suppressed marijuana for the medical benefit and the fuel benefit and the textile benefit. We let them destroy old growth redwood forests because they made hemp illegal because it was sustainable and within the grasp of every person to grow a crop of hemp and turn it into all sorts of products. So they've always been hell bent on monopoly and even just this small handful of points I'm making has had huge implications for the damage done to the planet and the dependency we have for their products. Anyone could grow hemp or have an alcohol still on their property, but not everyone can process a redwood or drill for oil. So this play for food is not new thinking. It's the same thinking applied to a new category given new technologies. Find a roundabout way to suppress, shame, and even ban foods like eggs, pork, and beef, which are far more accessible to people than highly processed cricket powder and pea protein. It might not be completely optimized top to bottom, but anyone with a little land can allow chickens, pigs, and cows to graze there until they're ready to be harvested. 
but that's what they do. Corner every market with the most complex product or raw material that only they can access. Medicine's the same. How many of these cures are quite easy? Whereas the petrochemical pills they produce are outside of our grasp. So overall, I just kind of take issue with that point that this is a new class of oligarch. It's the same old mindset, only the technologies have been updated. But again, you don't want to hit people with too much all at once. How important is it for them to understand the past if you can just make the case that we need to do something about the future? You got to meet people where they are, so I don't fault Seamus for it, but I'm talking to you guys, and you guys know a thing or two about a thing or two. And I want you to know that if you were thinking along those lines, I was as well. But it takes guts to write this sort of book and to go around making this case. And when I see people doing it, I want to at least try to contribute to helping their reach and making them feel like they made the right choice. A lot of journalists and authors are afraid they'll lose access and opportunities if they push too hard into really what is just the truth. But I want to lend our space to being there to say, actually, there's a big alternative media network and community that comes around to support those who are bold enough to put themselves out there like this. I feel a responsibility to do that, even if it's review for us a lot of the time. Because put yourself in their shoes. What's the alternative? They write this really explosive book about the control oligarchs or the World Economic Forum, and they can't get on any of the mainstream platforms anymore. So they come to a platform like mine, and I say, eh, you know, sorry, we've already covered that. Then they're just completely screwed. So I don't want that to happen. And there's a lot more shows than just mine, but... Again, I just have a weird thing in the back of my head that it's kind of my responsibility. And I try to find that line between the responsibility I'm speaking of and bringing you fresh, new, entertaining, wild stuff. So I hope that all makes sense. Big kudos to Seamus for a very thoroughly researched book with every claim backed up. It's a great book to spread around because its claims are very well substantiated with the lengthy footnote section and all the sources. So if you know people who are only halfway there or have yet to take the blinders off at all, you want books like this to exist to give to those people. We can always drag them deeper into the depths of the rabbit hole later. First things first, right? But seeing his book sell as well as it already has is a great sign because I do see this as a race between the collective understanding of the elite's intention and their implementation of these nightmarish control schemes. The Plus Show obviously goes a lot deeper. We made sure to hit all the people that you'll find on the front of the book. Some of the best Elon stuff was in the Plus Show. We got into George Soros and what to expect when he hands the reins over to his children. The Epstein stuff and J.P. Morgan's role, Bezos, Amazon, and the CIA. Just a lot of good stuff for people who are willing to support what I do around here and want to get more of it in return. And that said, in higher side news, the last episode with Richard Stanley has been just as popular as I would have thought. 
There are Reddit threads about how good it was, lots of emails and messages, and a very healthy 4.7 on the website plus member rating scale. So I'm glad we all agree there. He was excellent, and I'm always on the hunt for guests that can cover that part of the THC umbrella, but it's the hardest to do, and it's hard to even define. What category do you put that in? General mystery? A little bit of history, a little bit of magic. I don't know, but I loved it. And if you have guest requests for me, this is the area that I'm on the hunt for most. And before we say goodbye again today, you know we're checking the meetup calendar. Where is resistance and opportunity forming this month? Well, we got some new ones. February 3rd, Carbondale, Illinois at Buckwater Brew Works. February 8th, LA, Flame International Restaurant coming around again. February 10th, Saco, Maine, a meetup at the Golden Rooster. February 13th, Washington, D.C., the Belly of the Beast at Belgard. And then I see one already on the calendar for March in Abbotsford, British Columbia, Canada at Fieldhouse Brewing the Fraser Valley Brewery Meetup. I tell you, we're keeping a lot of these microbrews across this great land in business, and I think that's great. Gotta love it. Use the resource while you can. RSVP for any events you plan to attend so the host knows people will actually show up, and feel free to make your own. I actually talked to Seamus about the idea of doing something together here in Florida, but we will see. That said, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a Plus member if you are. Much appreciation to Seamus for his work and time, and I'll see you on the next one. I've done my part. Your move, one percenter puppet masters, micromanaging management class, and control-hungry controlagarchs. Your fucking move. Maybe you'll see goddamn this plan, no fan spraying on me. Cronies, don't you know they control the weather with all the chemicals that they spray? Oh no, it go, it gone. Bye bye, bye. I, I think, I sink. And I die, don't you know they control? Don't you know?